Welcome to Space Strategy, a podcast from the American Foreign Policy Council's Space Policy Initiative, where we are shaping a vision for the next strategic frontier. Now here's your host, AFPC Senior Fellow in Defense Studies, Peter Gerritsen. Welcome to the Space Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Gerritsen, a Senior Fellow in Defense Studies at the American Foreign Policy Council. Today, our guest is Robert Zubrin, an American aerospace engineer and author best known for his advocacy of manned exploration of Mars. He was the driving force behind Mars Direct, a proposal intended to produce significant reductions in cost and complexity of that mission. A key idea was to use the Martian atmosphere to produce oxygen, water, and rocket propellant for the surface stay and return journey. A modified version of the plan was subsequently adopted by NASA as their design reference mission. He questions the delay and cost to benefit ratio of the first establishing a base or outpost on an asteroid or another Apollo-like project for a return to the moon as neither would be able to provide for its own oxygen, water, or energy, and these resources are producible on Mars, and he expects people would be there thereafter. Disappointed with the lack of interest from the government in Mars exploration, and after the success of his book, The Case for Mars, as well as his leadership in the National Space Society, Zubrin established the Mars Society in 1998. It's an international organization advocating for manned Mars missions by goal, and by private funding, if possible. Welcome, Robert. Thanks for inviting me. So would you go ahead and describe what you do and how you view your role in the space ecosystem? Well, there's, there's two things I do. I, I operate as an engineer and as an advocate. Um, as an engineer, um, I uh, lead a company that I started in 96, still a business called Pioneer Astronautics which does R&D uh, for NASA, the military, the Department of Energy, private companies. We've done work across a large number of fields, including propulsion and life support and even high altitude balloon work, but fully half of our work and, and the place where we are really leaders is in the area of uh, what uh, NASA calls in situ resource utilization and which I prefer to call local resource creation um, because I don't believe that there is any such thing as a natural resource. I believe there's only natural raw materials and it is human ingenuity manifested through technology that turns materials into resources. Land was not a resource until people invented agriculture and it became a more valuable resource as agricultural productivity was improved through various technological innovations. Oil was not a resource until we invented oil drilling and refining and machines that could run on the product. Um, you know, if, if the general staff of Napoleon Bonaparte had been evaluating the natural resource of some country, they wouldn't have even included oil, let alone uranium, uh, which was not a resource until we developed nuclear fission. And, uh, deuterium is not really much of a resource now, but it will be once we develop a fusion. And, and so the question of the settlement of space and the development of space is a question of whether you can turn the materials there into resources. Um, an environment is habitable, is settleable for you if you have resources there, which is a function of what you bring to that environment. Let's just Not pause just for a, a moment there, right? So 
you use two words that are, is very familiar uh, to me, but may not be to our audience, right? Most people are used to hearing the term space exploration. You use the terms space settlement and development. Could you elaborate? What, what, and does it matter which words you use? Well, no, the words have distinct meanings. Um, exploration, which is part of development, um, is assessing uh, the materials, composition, uh, qualities of uh, the environment that you intend to operate in. It's the scouting part. Um, but it's, it's the beginning of the process. But then you say, what, what do we do further? How do we, once we have identified the materials that are available on the moon or on Mars or on an asteroid, um, how do we actually then figure out how we're gonna turn those materials into resources? That is space development. And obviously settling is um, establishing permanent human habitation. So we're gonna get into that, but, uh, but before we get into those big ideas, you said there was a second part to what you do besides running Pioneer Astronauts. Well, aside from um, my own technical work and that of my company, uh, I'm also an advocate. I'm a, a messenger. Uh, uh, you know, Victor Hugo said, nothing can stop an idea whose time has come. And that is true, provided the idea has messengers that can help the idea recruit to its banner the forces necessary for its victory. And uh, so, you know, through my publications and my talks and so forth, uh, I attempt to convey my vision of the potential uh, human future that is possible should we um, develop humanity into a multi-planet spacefaring species, what that has to offer. And, um, you know, I, I have played a role in, in recruiting people to the cause uh, at, at, at every level from uh, people deciding what they're going to do when they go to college to uh, helping to convince Elon Musk to make Mars uh, part of his calling in life. Uh, and the world's going to need more Elon Musks. And we'll get them, provided the idea is adequately conveyed. Now, to that end, you've recently published a new book, which I've read and pushed out. Uh, but tell us about your recent publication. Well, I think you're talking about my book, The Case for Space. And um, this book, uh, you know, the subtitle is How the Revolution in Spaceflight Opens a Future of Limitless Possibilities. So the book begins with the entrepreneurial uh, revolution in spaceflight, which is, uh, I guess, most publicly and clearly exemplified by the uh, uh, success of the SpaceX company, which has demonstrated uh, that it is possible for a well-led entrepreneurial team to create spaceflight systems in one-third the time at one-tenth the cost uh, than had been deemed uh, normative in the mainstream aerospace industry for some time, and even uh, to do things that had been deemed impossible altogether, such as reusable launch vehicles that return to their launch pads instead of crashing into the ocean. And, and therefore opening the prospect of vastly cheaper space launch systems and which SpaceX has uh, begun to achieve. We've had a reduction in the cost of space launch by about a factor of five over the past decade because of them. But also um, they have inspired emulators um, 
and uh, in not only launch companies, but spacecraft companies and space instrument and space technology companies. And uh, I, I think this is a very positive development. Now, before we go on, right, in that section, you lay out some of the incentives that the government has created that causes uh, things to not work very well. Could, could you uh, go over for the audience how, how not to structure a space program or a contract? Well, um, I don't know exactly when it happened in the 70s, perhaps, um, or so, that the government um, changed from fixed price contracting to cost plus contracting. Uh, because apparently some people in authority felt it was offensive when they found various examples of defense contractors, uh, you know, selling a fighter aircraft or something for uh, uh, significantly more than it cost them to make it. And they felt, you know, making double on, on such a thing is unfair to the taxpayers. And so what they would do is monitor the costs and say, okay, well, we'll give you 8% more than it cost you to make it. Um, so they got the cost plus contracting, but this actually reversed the incentives as far as the contractor was concerned. Instead of trying to make things as cheaply as possible, now uh, they, the more it costs them to make it, the more they would make, which is why when I was at Martin Marietta, the engineers had a joke, which was that Martin Marietta overhead is our most important product um, because you know, if the overhead went up, the government would pay that, and then they'll pay you the 8% upon, uh, on top of the direct costs, the overhead and the, the G&A expenses. Um, and so you created a system whereby uh, the more it cost the contractor, uh, the more money they made. Whereas in the previous system, um, yes, they would try to underbid their competition, but then uh, uh, do everything they can to economize below that so they would make a, a, a profit, which would then position them to make an even lower bid on the next contract. If we had had cost plus contracting during World War II, we would have lost the war. There's no question about it. Um, and uh, this has, has contributed to, to stagnation. Um, and, you know, the, the cost of space launch did not drop at all from around 1970 to 2010. Um, which is incredible. Uh, it only has dropped since 2010 because SpaceX came along and said, we'll do launches for you and don't ask us how much it's gonna cost us. We will just, here's our cost. It's less than Lockheed Martin, love it. Okay, and don't ask us how much we're making on it. Uh, and so they're ruthlessly dropping the cost down. How low do you think it could go? I, I think it, it could go uh, pretty damn low. Uh, the, okay, so, 2010, the cost of space launch was order of $10,000 a kilogram. Now, uh, with the mostly reusable Falcon line, it's, it's getting down to around $2,000 a kilogram. If the Starship, which is fully reusable and larger capacity is successful, I, I think Starship could take it down below $500 a kilogram. Um, and, and that's just the first generation of a reusable system. I mean, because look, I mean, let's think about this for a minute. You take a rocket engine, you know, Space shuttle main engine used to cost $50 million. Now the new version of it cost over $100 million. That's the same thing. Uh, it's less complex than an automobile. Um, and the automobile you can get for $20,000. Uh, well, okay, the automobile has mass production. Well, if rocket engines were mass produced, instead of costing 
tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. They should cost tens of thousands of dollars or perhaps hundreds of thousands of dollars. Okay, um, and that's a three order of magnitude drop in cost. Um, you know, the fully reusable vehicles open up new kinds of markets. For example, point-to-point uh, -point transportation. Uh, other than point-to-point -point delivery of warheads, uh, the, the idea of using rockets for point-to-point -point transportation on Earth is absurd. Um, the because you know we like using throwaway airliners for point-to-point -point transportation. But once you have reusable rockets, now instead of you know tens of millions of dollars of costs in expendable hardware per flight, you're talking about tens of thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of propellant costs. Um, so we're talking about three orders of magnitude drops. And you know, last year, I think there were about 100 launches around the world, something on that order, um, total launch market. And SpaceX got a quarter of them, which is to say most of the free world launches. Um, but you know, there's hundreds of intercontinental flights every hour. And uh, if, if space hardware can break into that, and in principle it can, because you can go surface to surface on earth by going through space, anywhere to anywhere in less than an hour. You know, people have made money on the earth's oceans for 3000 years and some by actually trying to extract wealth from the ocean, for example, by fishing, but a much bigger business by far has been the use of the ocean as a low drag medium connecting uh, the, the port city to port city anywhere on earth. Well, space is an ocean, zero drag, connecting every point on earth to every point on earth. And if it can be exploited that way, traveling through space, uh, that's gonna be a much bigger business than satellite launch. Let's get back to the big ideas in your book and the big ideas that might, that uh, animate your thinking period. So you, you started with the entrepreneurial revolution. What's next? Well, there's an entrepreneurial revolution in space launch, which will, and, and to some extent in spacecraft uh, based on this. Uh, and now the cheaper space launch gets the more rapidly spacecraft will advance. We've had stagnation in spacecraft for the past half century, relatively speaking, because it costs so much to do a launch that no one wants to take chances on new technology on spacecraft. For the past half century, the conventional wisdom among spacecraft designers is don't use anything that hasn't been used before. Uh, and, and that is not a formula for progress, but the, the, the lower sp cost space launches, the less conservative spacecraft designers need to be, and the faster spacecraft technology will advance, leading to more capable spacecraft, lighter spacecraft, cheaper spacecraft, all these things. Um, and, and so space capabilities will grow in that respect as well. And then the more capable the spacecraft are, that also makes the space launch more economical uh, because you want to do more things in space if they can uh, accomplishment. Um, and so, you know, we're on the cusp of entry into a, a true space age, a, a space age in the same sense that the world currently is in the air age, uh, in which aircraft uh, are, are playing a major role in all aspects of society, civilian transportation, air transport, military affairs, they're all uh, central. Uh, to it. They're, it's not uh, peripheral in any sense. So um, are there 
Are there policies or investments that the government could do right now to further catalyze this, to make it go faster? Sure. Um, first of all, um, awarding contracts based on merit. Um, the, 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 that is, if, if you want to promote merit, reward it. And so to take one example, um, you know, that NASA at this point is, uh, while they've awarded SpaceX a contract for its human landing system, is still committed to using the Space Launch System, SLS, for delivery of an Orion capsule to a high lunar orbit space station called the Gateway, um, the, to rendezvous with the SpaceX launcher, and uh, literally uh, spending $2 billion or so extra on the mission that is unnecessary uh, because they could just more easily, in fact, use Starship to get people to the gateway or to a low lunar orbit, which I would find more advisable in any case. Um, it's actually more advantageous in that role than it is as a landing system. And, um, you know, I mean, NASA has two modes of operation, which I call purpose-driven and vendor-driven, okay? Uh, Apollo was purpose-driven. It wasn't science-driven, but it was definitely purpose-driven. It was, uh, uh, its purpose was to astonish the world of what free people could do. Its purpose was not to give money to Saturn V contractors. The Saturn V was developed because it was needed to accomplish the mission, okay? The mission wasn't dreamed up in order to create money for Saturn V makers or lunar excursion module makers or, or, or other such things. Uh, the NASA science program has remained purpose-driven. You know, they didn't land rovers on Mars to give money to the airbag consortium. You know, the, 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 the various technologies used to land the rovers on Mars, you know, were developed for the purpose of landing rovers on Mars to do scientific exploration. And for instance, uh, the science director a couple of years ago used a Falcon 9 to deliver the test space telescope to its orbit. Um, and they saved themselves a couple of hundred million dollars over using a Delta IV, okay? That was a, a, a purpose-driven decision, okay? Whereas the NASA human spaceflight program post-Apollo has become vendor-driven. That is without a clear purpose, okay? Its chief function has been to uh, distribute funds to various constituencies, districts, contractors, and so forth. Um, and so, um, you get mission architectures, which are not designed to be as efficient as possible, but to be as inefficient as possible, to uh, distribute money to as many people as possible. In other words, like writing the school play in order to make sure all the kids get a good part. Um, well, that's okay with a third grade performance of, of, of a play. But when you're talking about billions of dollars, it's not the right way to proceed. And, you know, uh, X amount of dollars is going to make just as many people happy, distributed as efficiently as possible, as inefficiently as possible. It's just the country will accomplish a lot more if it's distributed as efficiently as possible. So this is a great segue, right? You are noted as a thought leader for being able to, to articulate purpose. So let, let's, let's go to the fundamentals, right? And I guess there are two questions here. The first one is the purpose of space at all? You know, why is space important to humanity and to US strategy and ambitions? And, and secondly, you know, within that, 
you know, what, you know, if, if you were, uh, you know, king of the hill able to write NASA's mission directives, what is the purpose that you would give them? Okay, now we have to view this. Um, there's immediate purposes, which for instance, many of the listeners to this podcast may view with very high priorities and rightly so, such as uh, having military superiority in earth orbit and, and so forth. And, and I'd like to address that. Uh, but then there's the broader purpose, um, which has to do with things of a more strategic nature. And by a strategic nature, I mean, you know, they used to say that, you know, the difference between the British and the Germans is that the German general staff did its military planning in terms of fortresses and railroad schedules, whereas the British did it in terms of, 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 of continents and centuries. Um, and um, and that, that is why the British ultimately uh, prevailed in, in uh, the struggle for the future. Uh, uh, not so much in, as Britain itself, although Britain was saved by the fact that it had spread its culture to other continents, including this one. Um, but in terms of what human society and the human future would look like uh, for centuries to come. Um, the, 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 um, but, you know, so yes, the fortresses and railway schedules are important too. Um, you know, but the, but the other thing is even more important. Now, if we talk about the purpose of the space venture most broadly. Um, you know, I, in the book, I, I give five reasons, you know, uh, for the knowledge, for the challenge, for our survival, um, and um, for uh, the future. Um, that is the knowledge, you know, we're talking about going out into the universe here. It's the best lab there is. Uh, it has already taught us most of what we know about physics. Um, and, uh, and I believe it has a lot more to teach us about that. Uh, and if we go to Mars about fundamental biology as well, uh, because um, we're gonna find out about the possible languages of biological information by seeing how life, uh, if life uh, evolved on Mars, did it use DNA, RNA as its method of communication and genetic information? What are the possible information systems that life elsewhere might have evolved? You know, uh, the, you know, there's the, the challenge, which once again, um, you know, I, I believe that societies are like individuals. We grow, we challenge ourselves, we stagnate when we do not. Um, you know, an expansive space program would, you know, tell every young person uh, message, you know, learn your science and you can become part of the great adventure. You can be a pioneer of new worlds. You, you know, this is, is what you want to do. And out of that challenge, as we did out of Apollo, uh, we would get tremendous intellectual capital, which would benefit us in every field. I, I myself, of course, went into science because of the Apollo program. I happen to be uh, somewhat unique, not, not entirely unique, but a minority, put it that way, in my generation, and that I actually ended up doing space, 
the rest of them went off and built Silicon Valley um, and became very rich and transformed the world in, in other ways. Um, the, the, uh, there is our survival, um, which is becoming spacefaring. Um, we will have the ability, for example, to deflect asteroids. Um, you know, I do not like at all the argument that some people advanced of, oh, we need to go into space so that when an asteroid hits the earth, we'll have some survivors somewhere else. That is to me, uh, a very unappealing and, 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 and improper argument. Uh, we're not going to space to desert the earth. We're going into space to protect the earth. Um, but yes, uh, as a nation, uh, we also need to control the flight traffic in near earth space as well. Um, which um, is a, a, of critical importance. Uh, and in this connection, I'll, I'll bring up some of these more tactical aspects of this, um, which is, uh, I believe that control of space is in fact the decisive, decisive uh, military consideration for uh, the uh, immediate future, actually. Uh, nuclear weapons, between major powers have essentially uh, neutralized each other. Uh, we're not gonna use nuclear weapons to defend Poland because it would be national suicide, okay? The, 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 and, and similarly, the Russians wouldn't use nuclear weapons for any other purpose other than if they had been attacked in, in that way themselves. But the, so, the, the, you know, it seems to many people that space assets are sort of a thrill, you know, uh, we use GPS in the war with Iraq, but if we hadn't had it, we would have defeated Saddam Hussein anyway. It just, you know, helped things out a bit. Um, the, the, but think about this. Think if space assets had existed in World War II, uh, but only the Axis had had them, okay? So, and I only had one form of them, reconnaissance satellites, just that. If all they had had was reconnaissance satellites, they would have won the war, okay? The Japanese would have spotted our carriers long before uh, uh, the Battle of Midway. They would have taken them out uh, and with their first strike and, and left the cruisers and such all exposed without air cover. They would have wiped them out. Uh, you know, the, the Germans would have won the Battle of the North Atlantic. They would have known where all the convoys were. Uh, you know, the, 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 they would have defeated the Russians because they could have spotted all those tank concentrations uh, way out on the step before they were ever brought to bear in counteroffensives. Uh, that one space asset had it been a monopoly of the Axis, uh, which is the last time we faced in a real war uh, a peer uh, 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 power. Um, that would have won. And of course, today, Space assets are not just reconnaissance satellites. They include command communication control. They include uh, the GPS satellites, which can make armaments, you know, a hundred times more accurate than unguided armaments and, and, and so forth. Um, so if, if one side has control of space and the other does not, and they're otherwise reasonably, even as well matched as Japan was against the United States, and they were not terribly well matched against the United States, uh, that side would win. Um, and uh, so control of, of space, both for purposes of national security and for purposes of 
protection of the earth itself is is essential to our survival. So let, let's pause right there. I, um, given your recognition of the importance of, uh, of sort of controlling our, our near abroad, do you think it was an appropriate uh, step for Congress to create a separate space force? Uh, I was somewhat divided on that, but I lean towards yes. Um, and the no side is that as part of the Air Force, they have more clout in terms of getting appropriations and such. But also as part of the Air Force, which is ultimately run by fighter pilots, um, it, it's, its value uh, is not sufficiently appreciated and understood and prioritized. So and so about I, I, I think that, you know, to me, it's 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 a 70-30 call because there's some arguments for the other side, but yes. Would you uh, would you give them the the job of homeland defense against asteroids? I might, yes. Um, but its primary job as a military arm is 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 the near abroad. And and by the way, in this connection, and I discuss this a bit in the book. And for all I know, this is being done. But if it's not being done, it needs to be done. I'm, I'm not read in on all the programs that there are, of course. Um, I think we need fighter satellites as distinguished from ASATs. And by fighter satellite, I mean something that can fulfill exactly the same function that fighter aircraft do for other air assets, which is they can not only interdict enemy air assets, they can protect ours. Um, because if we just develop ASATs and the Russians and the Chinese have ASATs, so everybody loses all their satellites at, at, on the first day of, of a conflict, uh, we're the net losers in that. Um, we are far more dependent on space assets than these others are. And really in terms of being able to wage war in a way with losses that would be acceptable to Americans as opposed to what might be acceptable to these other countries. Um, it can only be done by having space control, space supremacy, I guess is the term, um, which means that we maintain our space assets and deny the other side theirs. Now, let me also ask, right? So that sort of takes care of sort of the, the fortresses and railway context for a space force, but. If you take the other view of continents and centuries, the, what we consider the near abroad today should expand. Do you uh -huh. see the roles and missions of the Space Force expanding along the way as well? Well, perhaps. Um, the, I mean, look, it certainly doesn't hurt that um, if you have uh, an additional player involved in exploration and development. Uh, the exploration of the American West was done in part by expeditions financed by uh, fur trappers and uh, other such businesses, and in part by the U.S. military. Uh, the the, the uh, having additional players involved. Um, the more players, the more different creative approaches. Any organization tends to perhaps come under the control of some inside group that has its own ideas on how things should be done. And it is uh, beneficial to the overall project if there are a number of different groups that have different ideas uh, uh, playing the game. 
So, you know, and I think this is probably a good place to get back to your book, but paint me an image of our future in space. And how well, far does that go? Okay. Well, I believe that in terms of turning humanity into a truly spacefaring species uh, with the full array of capabilities, um, the development and settlement of Mars uh, is the key thing um, in the medium term. Uh, that is, Mars is the closest world that has all the materials needed to support life and technological civilization. The moon, while much closer, is deficient uh, in many of them. Uh, and although, I mean, there's stuff you can use on the moon for sure. But if, if you want to uh, develop new branches of human civilization, uh, Mars is the place. And, and why should we want to do that? Why should we want to develop new branches of human civilization? Well, you might say because the ultimate uh, uh, stakes in the game of life is not money, it's children. Uh, and this goes for individuals and for societies. Uh, and this gets us back to the continents and centuries. Uh, uh, I, I have in my house a book um, by, uh, uh, I think he's A.R. Rouse. He's a, was a Shakespeare critic and he wrote this book in 1957 and it's called The Elizabethans and uh, America. And the whole book is a hymn of praise to Queen Elizabeth I, Walter Raleigh, Richard Hacklett, uh, Humphrey Gilbert and the others of that crowd for having the vision to open up the settling of America, because if they had not done so, Britain would have lost World War II. And the, um, and that is uh, true. Uh, now, you know, I think that whoever settles Mars, okay, number one, uh, it will not remain colonies of America or China or any other country, that ultimately Martian societies will go their own way. But they, their point of departure will be determined by the culture that initiated them, okay? And so those cultures that wish to put their stamp on the future, uh, that wish the future to accept as, as, as normative uh, concepts of individualism and human rights and perhaps uh, more uh, advanced concepts in those areas than we currently hold, but at least as good, uh, th they will need to participate in that. And see, look, Mars is gonna be frontier culture. Uh, it's gonna have a tremendous labor shortage just as the American frontier did. And so just as the American frontier put uh, a, a premium on ingenuity, development of labor-saving machinery because labor was so costly in America. Um, the, and so Yankee ingenuity became a cliche. Um, well, uh, on Mars, yes, labor-saving machinery for sure, but also more advanced versions of that, i.e. robotics, artificial intelligence, um, genetic engineering. Um, these things that all greatly increase productivity uh, become necessary and, the, the, and therefore are developed. And uh, and, and, and things that interfere with that, uh, including uh, uh, 
social forms that prevent people from exercising their full human potential through uh, bureaucracy and needs for certifications and, and all these things uh, they become un unacceptable and, 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 and become, uh, well, clearly absurd. Uh, and so you get a new and more dynamic form of society evolve. And so by uh, extending ourselves in this way and putting our stamp on this culture and, and giving it its, its start, uh, and then uh, having, well, you might say people who think like us out there pushing the frontier more, uh, you know, having some vigorous children out there to, to, to help us in the future. This is a, a very good thing. And furthermore, um, I, I think that, you know, look, if, if you have human beings on Mars, if you have, okay, not only will you be developing all the technologies required to turn Martian materials into resources, um, which is everything from Martian steel to Martian deuterium for fusion reactors, because you know you don't have fossil fuels on Mars other than those that you make through some other means that require energy. Um, you're talking about advancing space travel uh, and the entire uh, uh, assortment of technologies that go along with that. And um, this is something tremendous. And then finally, there's another thing, and I, I draw this point out in the book. Um, because while space technology and space development uh, will give us the technologies we need to prevail if a conflict should happen, I believe they will give humanity the ideas it needs to prevent a conflict from happening. And, uh, and I'll tell you why. Okay, because people they talk about the dangers facing humanity today. Some people say it's global warming, and resource exhaustion. There's even some people say overpopulation. Uh, well, none of those things were the source of the major catastrophes that uh, afflicted humanity in the 20th, 20th century. Okay, the major disasters of the 20th century were not caused by climate change or resource exhaustion or overpopulation. Uh, they were caused by something else entirely. They were caused by pathological ideas. And in particular, one pathological idea in a variety of forms. And what that pathological idea is, is that there isn't enough for everyone because there's only so much here, okay? The, you know, if you get right down to it, that is the idea that underlined the catastrophes, World War I, World War II. It is the fundamental idea that if, if there should be a war between the West and China, that will be the idea that makes it seem inevitable and causes it to happen. And it's a wrong idea. You know, Hitler, Germany needs living space. The laws of existence require uninterrupted killing so the better may live. It was all nonsense. Germany never needed living space. Germany today has a smaller territory and a larger population than the Third Reich and a vastly higher standard of living, which was achieved not because they managed to steal other people and uh, land and kill them and steal their cows or, or any of this other stuff. It was caused due to the advance of science and technology, which was contributed to in some degrees by Germans, but actually much more by people of all other nations 
uh, including notably uh, uh, the various uh, groups that they were trying to exterminate. And this is what uh, has uplifted Germany. Uh, and it is not true that the human race is a bunch of nations in a struggle for existence over limited resources. We are actually a disorderly family uh, of nations in a common project to expand the total amount of resources available. I mean, look, why, why is China progressing very rapidly right now? Well, it's because the technology is invented in the West. But how did the West have its renaissance in the first place? Because the technologies like printing and paper that were invented in China. So, and inventions made everywhere ultimately become used everywhere. So we are in a common project, but people don't see that. They think, gee, there's only so much oil in the world and who's gonna get it? You know, the, 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 and, and it's not that we're gonna get oil from Mars. It's that what we're gonna get from Mars is an understanding that resources are infinite. But that there's, it's not true that there's only so much to go around here because the earth comes with an infinite sky and we are capable of throwing it wide open. So that's a perfect place to back up and talk about other ideas, right? So on the one hand, there are the ideas, you know, uh, by visionaries such as yourself that are uh, promoting this idea of a multi-planetary civilization of this earth with an infinite sky, um, of carrying life to worlds now dead. On the other hand, there seems to be ideas, uh, you know, reflecting sort of the, the traumatic experience of, uh, of colonialism. And you've written eloquently, you know, about how this may be expressed in planetary protection policy. You know, there's kind of an anti, uh, an anti-wealth uh, sort of critique that, you know, space is just going to enable or allow for, you know, a, a greater uh, inequality and, you know, what are we doing to ruin these, these other worlds? If you could, you know, just summarize your, your very eloquent counter to those, well, well, what are those bad ideas if you think they're bad ideas? And then what is the counter to them? Okay. Well, you know, a civilization becomes decadent when it rejects its formative principles. That is what decadence actually is. And yes, and it may come along with wild pornographic parties and all the rest of that kind of stuff. But what is really going on, okay, um, you know, Rome became decadent when its leaders rejected the idea that a good life was one of great deeds and instead embraced it should be based on comfort and pleasure. Okay, so that was the ultimate content of, of, of that decadence. The, 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 the idea of creation, of that human creation, transformation of that humans can improve nature, okay, which is fundamental to Western society okay, that the idea that we did something grand when we transformed America from a wilderness into a continental nation of 330 million people, the, you know, um, a, you know uh, a temple of liberty with cities and universities and used bookstores that contributed to the world by demonstrating the value of democracy and inventing electricity and aeroplanes and nuclear power and computers and you know, that, that this was somehow wrong, 
Okay. Um, this is um, a document idea. Okay? It represents rejection of our formative principle. It's a very dangerous idea. Um, and the uh, and it is most more clearly um, stated than by those who say we should not develop Mars because Mars should be left as it is. It is somehow unethical to develop Mars or to bring life to Mars. Now, look, okay. When I was a kid, Christopher Columbus was a hero. There were Columbus Day parades. And, you know, actually, I would recommend anyone who wants to understand this to go to Columbus Circle in New York City, where there's a monument to Christopher Columbus. It was put up in 1892 at the initiative of Italian Americans who were very proud of Christopher Columbus. And it says on its base in Italian and then in English, to the world, he gave a world. To the world, he gave a world. This is how he was understood. And uh, I, I frankly believe correctly. But it is true that when Columbus landed, there was here in the New World a collection of Native American cultures, of, of certainly of, of, of some real value. That There was vast herds of buffalo and fantastic forests of towering redwoods. And much of that was destroyed uh, in order to make possible what is here now. So you had something of value, yes, that was there and something and, and was largely destroyed in order to create something else of value. And people can debate whether something of greater value was created. Uh, and I, I believe it was, but uh, I, I certainly concede the point that something of value was destroyed. However, however, okay, if there had been nothing here when Columbus landed, but a dead desert with maybe some microbes living in the groundwater below it, and they had transformed that into what is here now, would there be people picketing Columbus Day parades today? Um, I, I don't think so, okay? Uh, if they would, they would be just basically psychotic. And now, so you, you talk about Mars, we're talking here with a clean slate. You know, yes, there might be some microbes in the groundwater of Mars and they are absolutely worthy of investigation um, to, for what they'll teach us about fundamentals of biology. But the idea that there's some ethical basis for aborting the creation of a human culture on Mars, a dynamic new branch of human civilization, which by the way, will go along with a large variety of new species of plants and animals that will uh, exploit that environment. That is, we're not just talking about bringing life to Mars, we're bringing Mars to life. Um, and and uh, the idea that that should be aborted uh, because of a concern about uh, Martian microbes I don't believe that's an ethical concern. I believe that's an aesthetic concern. I believe it is anti-ethical. Um, it, it's like someone saying you shouldn't use antibiotics because it's unethical to kill bacteria. Um, you know, it, it, it's indefensible. It, it is a misapplication of a critique. Okay, Western civilization is not without sin. We have created something extraordinary. We harmed some other people in doing it. 
that's true. But the re reason why that was a sin is because those were people. American Indians were not microbes. And that's why what we did to them was a sin. Okay, if they had been microbes, it would not have been a sin. Uh, the, 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 and frankly, it is insulting to them to compare them uh, or to compare extraterrestrial microbes to native populations that were taken advantage of by more advanced Western cultures. So let's, let me bring it back. So, you know, I think you've adequately, you know, answered, you know, the first increment, which is for Mars. Actually, let, let's start a little bit before that, right? So you were a critic of the, the switch back to the moon, and you've been a specific critic of the architecture on the moon with the, the, the uh, gateway and of the space launch system, which you talked a bit about. Um, and then there's also the question of like, what, you know, if we're gonna do the moon, what is it good for, you know, and, and what would you like to see done? Right now that seems pretty nebulous other than to re return the first woman and, and next man, right? But, you know, feel free to, you know, throw down the grenades as to what you think are, are the, the stupid things. But if we are going to go to Mars, right, what's the marching orders that, that if you were king, you would give NASA? What, what should they be doing if they're actually going to set up a camp, an industrial facility, you know, a base there? What's value okay. added? Well, um, I actually think that um, NASA made a very courageous decision last week in awarding the human landing system contract to SpaceX. Um, the decision is completely incoherent with the existing architecture. Um, and at this point, they are still uh, trying to make it compatible by saying, well, we'll still deliver the, have a gateway and deliver the Orion capsule there and we'll have refuelable SpaceX starships being supplied from Earth and landing back and forth on the moon from there. But uh, frankly, it doesn't take very much to see that you could get rid of the rest of the architecture and just use the SpaceX part and accomplish uh, the lunar goal much more efficiently. And I think that will actually come out in the wash. Now, furthermore, I mean, what we're talking about here, you know, prior to this, and still to some extent, but at this point, greatly endangered, was this vendor-driven architecture of the, the lunar return. Uh, but now uh, that's living on borrowed time as a result of this decision. And furthermore, while the NASA moon base uh, had very little to do with sending humans to Mars, although admittedly you could use SLS to send large payloads to Mars, I mean, sure. Uh, but the rest of it, no. Um, this architecture, I mean, actually it's easier to send a starship to Mars, a lot easier. Uh, refueling a starship in Earth orbit and sending it on trans-Mars injection than running tankers to lunar orbit to refuel uh, a reusable lunar starship uh, ascent descent vehicle, um, sending a starship to Mars, uh, actually empty, you could do with two refueling tankers with a substantial payload with perhaps six refueling tankers, uh, 
to support the operation of a lunar ascent descent starship uh, based actually preferably in low lunar orbit. It would require about 10 tankers based at the gateway it would require about 14 tankers. Uh, the, the, it's harder if you use the gateway. That's why I call the gateway toll booth. Um, the, the, but, but in other words, if you're, there's a different vision here of space operations that Musk is pushing and which uh, I've only gradually warmed to, but which I now think is right, um, which is based on frequent operations um, that, that a large number of reusable launch vehicles operated frequently so that you, you do not have flights you know, four times a year, or eight times a year. You have flights several times a week, uh, maybe not of the same vehicle, but if you have 10 different starships in operational capacity and each one is being flown, you know, uh, once every 10 days, then you've got a flight every day. And the, the um, uh, and these things are reusable, so they are cheap. They are produced in large numbers, so they are cheap. The operations are frequent, and so they are safe because you become uh, highly expert in uh, operations in the same sense that, that, you know, an air crew has it down as to what it needs to do, uh, it, which it, it would not if they were flying airplanes once a year. And the, 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 uh, and then this can support uh, very large scale operations in space um, uh, cheaper. Can you, can you just define very large, right? Because I think probably the majority of my audience, you know, starts off thinking that the, that the entire pinnacle of the US space program might be getting two or three people, you know, to the surface of Mars once, you know, like when you think about scale, what is scale? Well, look, Musk started SpaceX for the purpose of enabling the settlement of Mars, okay? And uh, cynics may think that that is uh, false, that he's just in it for the money, but uh, that, that's not true. Uh, I, I happen to know Musk. I played a certain role in helping to convince him to make Mars uh, part of his calling. Um, and believe me, uh, he already had all the money he could want. And if he wanted more, he knew of a lot better ways to make money than starting a rocket company. Um, a lot easier ways. Um, and he'll probably make money with SpaceX because this guy can make money doing anything, but that's not the purpose of SpaceX. The purpose of SpaceX is to colonize Mars. Now, if you want to look, if you want to just explore Mars, and if the government is footing the bill, if I mean, if you could convince NASA that you could send, you know, four or five, six people to Mars at a cost of $300 million each, and, and if you could convince them that that was so, they, you've made the sale. They would do that. A Mars exploration program at a cost of a couple of billion dollars a mission. It's a wow. Okay, let's do that. Okay, I mean, you know, uh, fine. That's running a Mars exploration program at the cost of the shuttle program. We're, we're, ready, we're, we're up for that, okay? But if you want to settle Mars, it can't cost $300 million to send a person to Mars because a colonist can't afford, I mean, except for a very small number of people on Earth who probably aren't the ones that would be interested in going to Mars, uh, you don't have $300 million, okay? To make colonization possible, 
you would have to reduce the cost of transportation to Mars to a few hundred thousand dollars at most. Um, that is in relative terms, what it cost someone to come to colonial America in the 16 or 1700s. Um, you know, that is someone, if they were middle-class to liquidate their house and farm to buy one-way passage, if they were a working man to mortgage seven years labor for room and board, indentured servants. You think about seven years labor today, $50,000 a year say for an uh, average working man, uh, that's $350,000. That is, the amount of money that someone is willing to spend to make a move if they're willing to cash in their chips and go, okay? Uh, and the, so how do you get the cost down that low? Number one, you can't do it with expendable launch vehicles because the hardware cost alone would take you orders of magnitude beyond that. Uh, so therefore, reusability becomes essential. And Furthermore, if you're going to colonize, you can't do it with sending, you know, five people every two years, okay? You, you have to be able to send thousands of people a year. Uh, so you need larger ships. They need to be reusable. They have to have a very high flight rate relative to the sorts of things that rockets do now, not relative to the sorts of things the aircraft do now, but the sort of things that rockets do now, yes. Uh, the, um, you know, uh, Musk poses some extremely aggressive metrics of wanting to be able to move a million people to Mars in 10 years. I don't think it'll actually work that way. I think actually you'll start out moving dozens of people to Mars, establishing uh, greenhouse farms and other facilities that create an economic base on Mars that then allow you to send hundreds of people to Mars and they can establish larger facilities that ultimately allow you to send thousands of people to Mars. So it will evolve, but nevertheless, you need the sort of thing. So look, I went to Boca Chica. I met with Musk there about a year ago. And uh, it was clear he wasn't building a ship. He was building a shipyard, okay? Um, he was hiring people by the hundreds. Uh, the, uh, he has already at this point He's turning out Starship prototypes at a rate of one a month. Um, and his goal is to be able to turn out several a week. Um, the, but let's say he can get to one a week, which I think he can based on what I saw. Um, then you're talking about within a couple of years, uh, having a fleet of a hundred Starships. And once again, if they can be turned around on, um, you know, a time scale of, of 10 days or so, if you have a hundred starships, and, and, well, if you had a hundred starships and they're being turned out every hundred days, you'd be launching one a, a day, um, you know, uh, and, and I think his turnaround time is reasonably, he might not be able to turn them around one a day, but I think they could probably turn them around one every 10 days. So now you're talking about launching 10 a day. Uh, and, these things, okay, the payload capacity is on the order of 100 tons, okay? If you were launching 100 tons to orbit 10 times a day, that's 1,000 tons a day, um, that's 360,000 tons a year, uh, compared to right now, the whole world is launching about 100 launch vehicles with, say, an average payload of 10 tons each, 
um, is 1,000 tons a year uh, is what's going to orbit now. So we're talking about increasing the amount of stuff going to orbit by at least two, maybe three orders of magnitude, cutting costs by three orders of magnitude. Um, and, and the more activity there is, the faster the rate of technological progress will be, the more people will be playing the game, uh, taking more chances with, uh, you know, if it only costs, you know, $100,000 to get a satellite into space instead of $100 million, there's a lot more risks that somebody can take in terms of, you know, advanced technologies on the spacecraft. Well, and, let me ask you, you know, if this world is possible, you certainly seem to think that, it, that the physics and the, you know, the finance at least allow it uh, to take place. What is the, you know, what role does that leave for the US government? And at the minimum, like, how do we stay out of the way? How do we incentivize it? Or how do we stay out of the way? What, what's well, the right- Well, certainly at this point, um, by, well, first of all, awarding contracts based on cost effectiveness rather than based on congressional district. Uh, the, 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 uh, in other words, if you award contracts based on merit, you're going to encourage merit as opposed, you know, in other words, if, uh, but it's merit on the right figures, right? You seem to yes. suggest that it, like, like launch rate itself should be a national goal. Well, sure, launch rate. Well, launch rate affects the cost effectiveness of the contractor. I mean, look, the reason why, you know, the shuttle um, went from costing $500 million a launch to a billion dollars a launch when it went from eight launches per year to four launches per year, because the, the, the workforce required to launch shuttles cost $4 billion a year. And if you're launching four, it's going to cost you a billion a launch. Uh, you know, if, if they had been able to launch them at a rate of 40 a year, then it would have been $100 million a launch. Um, the, the, so this idea, now, now there's other things going on here too with SpaceX showing a different way of, of doing development. Um, you know, Musk's development strategy is much more reminiscent of the early years of aviation than um, the recent years of NASA. Uh, instead of studying something for decades and then, you know, launching with a high hopes of, of, of success, you know, he, he's turning these things out, launching them, crashing them, finding out what went wrong, launching another one, uh, just bulldozing his way through this thing. Um, and basically uh, is wrapping up very forcefully the, the rate of development as, as well as the rate of manufacture at the same time. Um, the, the, uh, so I wanna see that now. Now I have to tell you, okay, that there's a lot of people watching this thing. And for example, I'm aware of at least five companies in China that have financial backing who are trying to create reusable launch vehicles right now. Um, and uh, yes, they are looking to create something comparable to the Falcon one. Uh, and Musk understands this, which is why he is working to make the Falcon line, which is the best thing going right now, obsolete, okay? And this is, uh, 
a different kind of thinking than what we've seen in the space industry for a long time. You know, I, I used to work for the Martin Company and we had the Titan line, which, okay, there was a Titan one. And by the time I was there, the Titan ones were gone, but there were still Titan twos, Titan threes, Titan fours. Uh, and the Titan four was the most powerful, but it still had the same upper stage as the Titan two and was underpowered as a consequence. And we engineers went to the management. We said, look, here's a concept we have for upgrading the upper stage of the Titan IV to something that is more suitable to the rest of the vehicle. And we could double the payload capacity of the Titan while increasing the cost of the vehicle by 10%. And the management said to us, look, if the Air Force wants us to increase the capacity of the Titan IV, they'll pay us to do it. Um, and so there you go. Uh, so I, I wanted to pause there because you're not the only one who has, well, maybe your story is slightly different, but I've heard from multiple people that when, when sort of our space industry was young, many of these dynamic corporations were run by engineers. And then at some point that switched over and they were run by management science majors uh, or, you know, and, and that this changed the thinking and approach. And there's a current debate about what sort of skills should be sought and should prevail in the new space force. Some arguing for more technocrat, you know, uh, STEM uh, rated others, you know, suggesting, you know, that, that uh, management sort of may still be king. Uh, you know, what do you think about all that? Well, first of all, I mean, look, you know, the people that started Boeing and Lockheed and Martin were Boeing and Lockheed and Martin. And these were people that were into airplanes um, and, and making air travel and, uh, and military aircraft and all this stuff a real thing. And th their lives were in the same areas. They were people of the same type in a sense as Musk, um, you know, there were probably people who could have made money doing other things. Uh, but in any case, they were, they were people who believed in the importance of what they were doing uh, and would not have been happy just, you know, making money selling washing machines or, 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 or clipping coupons. Uh, the, 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 um, and I think those companies lost a lot when those kinds of people were no longer running them. Um, you know, there may come a time when SpaceX is made a public company and, and when Musk is no longer there uh, and the people running it are MBAs who feel they are responsible to stockholders and why are we wasting money on all this Mars stuff and if we're going to improve Starship, the Air Force will pay us to do it. Uh, the, 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 um, and that'll be unfortunate. Uh, but hopefully, if that should ever happen, there'll be some other entrepreneurial companies that will come along um, and, and, and pick up the torch. Um, because, you know, I mean, what can I say? This is a cause. Uh, technological progress is a cause. Uh, medical progress is a cause. Okay. And it's one that hasn't been advanced by the MBAs of the world. It's, it's been advanced by people who believe that this is important and are, you know, sure, anything that you can make money at will be done. That is the invisible hand will make it happen. But for something to happen that is not obvious 
way to make money, for, for something new to be born. Uh, it needs to be driven by a creative idea and, uh, how can I put it, by, by heart, uh, by passion. Uh, the, you know, nothing great has ever been accomplished without passion. And, um, you know, sure, once it, it, it's a done deal and, and you can make money selling it, the old people will sell it and it won't matter if the government tries to stop it, it will still get made um, and sold, okay? But it takes a, a certain kind of person to, to drive this thing forward. And, you know, um, and, and you could take this in almost any field. Uh, you know, the, the, you know the, the aircraft carriers was not created by the battleship admirals. And the nuclear submarine was created by Rickover, not by the carrier admirals. And then, you know, and, and it, it took people who had a certain vision and were willing to fight the system and fight against the odds to make it, um, make some, bring something new. Do, do you think we're still at that place in space where that kind of passion and newness will be needed for the Space Force? Or do you think we've been operating military satellites for forever and it's okay to sort of I think passion. to take it to the next level, at, at any stage, um, to take something beyond where it is takes people with, with passion. So you had mentioned three companies in China, and I wanted to ask you point blank: should we be comfortable resting on our laurels, or is American Absolutely space privacy in, in jeopardy? Absolutely not. I mean, look, you know, uh, Musk's success is visible. Uh, in other words, once something proves, someone proves it can be done, others will do it. You know, um, if you want to know, the big secret of the atomic bomb wasn't revealed by the Rosenbergs. It was revealed by dropping it on Hiroshima. Once Stalin knew it was possible, you know, the other stuff was just in the noise. And the, the, you can't, um, you can't stay ahead by sticking with what you have. Uh, you have to assume, you have to know that uh, once it becomes clear you can do something, other people are gonna learn how to do it. What, uh, what will the United States need to do to stay competitive? Well, I don't know exactly, but once again, I this, you know, I think this decision that NASA made, which was basically a decision to say we're going to support this Starship development, that's basically what they said. Okay, um, and it didn't really matter that they were supporting it for actually uh, one of the less favorable applications of Starships. Um, they were supporting the Starship development. Um, instead of saying, you know, what's this? This guy is 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 uh, making us look bad by doing something better, uh, and so it was really a recognition that something really worthwhile was being done here, and we needed to help support it, um, and uh, you know. The Blue Origin, Lockheed Martin uh, lander was, you know, designed explicitly to play to NASA's prejudices. 
uh, it corresponded exactly to what was depicted in cartoon form on the bat charts that NASA had been flogging about, you know, pacing a three-stage expendable lander at the gateway and all this kind of thing. Uh, and, you know, you know, NASA is a human organization. It's prone to all the weaknesses of the flesh, uh, but they have their moments. And this was one of them, because uh, they're going to take a lot of shit uh, flack on this from Congress and other interests. They, they really broke the mold. And, um, but it shouldn't be um, a black swan event when a procurement is rewarded on the basis of merit. Uh, the, 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 and, and I think that, uh, you know, we, basically what Space Force and NASA have to do is figure out what they need to do to encourage this kind of initiative and not just from Musk, but from others and, and not just in this field, but in, in, in all the fields related so, to the space venture. So you're, you seem bullish that, uh, that SpaceX will succeed and that they'll be able to provide this fully reusable railroad to the, to the moon. And, and once they do, Right. Once you can get as much as 100 metric tons to the lunar surface, what's the right thing to do there if the direction is forward to Mars? And as you put in the, in the book, Mars is just the direction. You know, OK, well, first of all, if the SpaceX railroad uh, becomes operational, they may well get to the moon before this base is established, get to Mars before this moon base is established, because in fact, it is easier to send a starship to Mars, refueling it in Earth orbit, than it is to run a railroad from lunar orbit down to the surface, supplying it with a string of starships, uh, tankers. Uh, from the, in any case, it certainly uh, won't come much later. Um, and in our, we're creating a, a general uh, uh, space capability here. And, and an entirely different concept of operations. Uh, and all the rest is just fantastic. Um, the, now, whether SpaceX will succeed, I think their chances are high. Of course, there's no guarantee. Uh, they could have a failure that is dramatic. What if one of these Starship crashes actually kills someone by not crashing on the pad, but crashing where there are people? Uh, or what if Musk gets himself into trouble with some stupid tweet denouncing the Securities and Exchange Commission or, or some other thing that you know uh, he might do? I mean, Musk, frankly, is a risk taker. Uh, he skates close to the edge of the ice. But and if he fails, it will set us back some. But if that lesson of this mode of operation and this way of doing things is taken to heart. And I think it will be at least by somebody because it's been so clearly a success that if he drops the flag, someone else is going to pick it up. What's after Mars? Well, um, you know, I, I think uh, asteroids will be developed. Um, and uh, not so much if you want to know in or you know, people are saying, well, we're going to process 
platinum out of asteroids and ship it to Earth. We're going to make all this money and everything. Uh, I think the asteroids will probably be developed by people who want to have places of their own and then figure out a way to make money doing it so that they can have a place of their own. It's like the people who live by hunting reindeer in Finland. They, they don't do that because they studied all possible business plans and discovered that the optimal way to make money was by hunting reindeer in Northern Finland. Rather, they wanted to have a certain way of life in Northern Finland and they found they could just support it by hunting reindeer. Um, the, um, but yes, uh, in other words, look, the case for space ultimately is freedom. Um, that is people who want to have a place where they can go where the rules haven't been written yet, which is the ultimate form of freedom. Does that and, matter if it's us or another power that's not a democracy? Well, yeah, it does. Uh, if you believe, as I do, that the ideas of Western civilization of, for instance, intrinsic human rights. You, you know, in Russia, uh, there's a minority of people who are known as liberals. And what that term means in Russia is anyone who believes that people should have intrinsic rights that the government does not have the power to uh, transgress, okay? From the Russian point of view, virtually the entire American political spectrum from Ted Cruz to Barack Obama are all liberals, okay? Because, you know, there's little differences on how much you like the First Amendment or the Second Amendment, but they all like the basic concept that people have these like castle walls around them and the government is, 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 cannot go through those walls, okay? Whereas in Russia, it is believed by most people, not by the liberals, the liberals are a minority in opposing this, that the government should have unlimited power. And that the, because the government expresses in one form or another, the people's will, and therefore it is a restriction on the people's will uh, if individuals have this power, have any power to resist the government, okay? So, and, and there are Russian political thinkers who talk about uh, this idea that you have, that we have of, of human rights, intrinsic rights as being uh, racist because uh, it is this Anglo-Saxon conceit that people should have individual rights that defy the general will. Um, and, but this is a civilizational difference, okay? You know, in America, we have political food fights over healthcare regulations. In Russia, the issue is whether there should be trial by jury. Um, the, 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 uh, and so, and, and, and well, we'll see how that plays out over time. But this idea of unlimited power of the government, which of course is also held in China and in many other countries, uh, 
is this is a, a civilizational defining thing as to you know in, in, in I was in China a couple of years ago and the hosts were very nice people and and of course they're very interested in what I had to say about space and all that um, and they were very proud of the China's recent economic accomplishments um, but they saw absolutely nothing wrong uh, in the the overall total intrusiveness that was being created as a method of social control in China. Um, they felt that this was um, a good thing, a necessary thing to create the harmonious society. Uh, so and just, just to be clear about the stakes that we're talking about here, you know, in your, in your long sweep of the future, are you thinking that the number of people whose freedom we're talking about in space is the million people on Mars? Or do you think there will be more human derived souls in the universe besides a small colony on the red planet? Oh no, we're talking about trillions of people on thousands of planets uh, around stars in, in this region of the galaxy. Um, the, by becoming spacefaring, I mean, Mars is the first place, yes. and the becoming multi-planetary will encourage the development of much more potent uh, space propulsion systems, for example, than anything that we currently seriously contemplate. Fusion propulsion systems, things better than that. Uh, the the um, Which we're presently region, not invested in right now. Right, but which, look, Columbus crossed the Atlantic in ships that even 50 years later, no one would have crossed the Atlantic in. Okay, because there weren't transatlantic ships for Columbus to attempt his voyage with. There were Mediterranean and coastal class ships. Okay, but once Europeans became transatlantic, they developed three-masted caravels and then clipper ships and then steamboats and ocean liners and Boeing 747s. Okay, that this is, is what a transatlantic civilization generated. Okay, so the needs of an interplanetary civilization will transform interplanetary travel. The grandchildren of the first people who go to Mars will look at the starship the way we look at, you know, if you're of immigrant stock and you've heard the tales of your grandparents are coming over and tramp steamers and they're in the, down there in, in the third class quarters and the first class passengers throwing orange peels down to them, we give them something to eat. And, 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 and you know, you hear this stuff and, and, and you know, it, it's sort of amazing, these heroic stories of what it took to cross the Atlantic and of course, that generation of the turn of the century, they had it easy compared to the colonial generation taking three-month passengers and reeking sailing ships. And, and, and th so the, the um, you know, the, the, so once again, the grandchildren of, of, of the starship colonists will, will listen to their tales of their grandparents with the same wonder that we listen to uh, ours uh, because they will do the transit in fusion powered space liners that do the trip in a week. And the, 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 uh, I think it's amazing that anybody ever took six months to sail from Earth to Mars. Uh, so, and in, in, inherent in what you're saying, right, are really colossal civilizational goals, right? Yeah. And if we're going to be the, the, the vanguard, you know, if that's going to be part of the purpose of our nation, right, can you sort of give me a a summary, you know, what are the goals? What is the space agenda worthy of our nation, right? Just 
you know, can you lay out, you know, five or six, like, go do this, right? I mean, you've sort of laid out several, you know, get launch a lot, get to Mars, you know, develop fusion, you know, but what's the plan? What's the plan? The plan is to create, the plan is to create an unlimited human future. And toward that end, to create an unlimited human future, last question, I think, uh, do you foresee, I mean, is there anything you'd like to see in legislation or executive orders or spelled out in policy that, that, that's not there today? Well, yeah, there's a variety of things I can think of. Uh, sure, I'd like uh, Biden to commit the nation to land humans on Mars within 10 years. Um, and then, yes, and then we can figure out the most cost-effective way to do that. And I, I think that's likely at this point to be the Starship plan, but uh, we need, we'll need space nuclear power. Uh, not at this point so much for a propulsion, but for surface power. Um, and well, if you think about the universe, uh, most of it lacks <laughs> sunlight <laughs> and, and fossil fuels and waterfalls and all of this. So yeah, um, uh, so yes, uh, and, and in particular, you know, the Starship plan, like my Mars Direct plan, requires making the return propellant on Mars methane oxygen out of uh, um, Martian CO2 and, and water. And solar energy on Mars is problematical. It's only 40% as, 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 as potent as it is on Earth, and it's subject to interruptions by dust storms and such. You really want to have nuclear power. You want to have nuclear power on the moon, although it's not as critical because the moon is more predictable, but still you have two weeks of dark at a time. Um, the, the, you know, the, to transform materials into resources takes energy. Um, and if we understand that space becomes habitable for us, if we have the capacity to turn its materials into resources, then space power, um, becomes a thing. And, and yes, in earth orbit, solar energy is quite reliable, but on the surface of planets, uh, it becomes a, a more problematical issue. Um, you know, um, I would like to see the US restart its fusion program. Uh, and once again, rewarding entrepreneurial initiatives. Uh, the, uh, up through the 1980s, there was some significant pro progress in fusion going on. Um, because of competition between ourselves, the Soviets, Europeans, and the Japanese. In other words, there were national programs competing against each other, and it created a certain dynamism to the system. That progress ground to a halt once the bureaucracies of those four major players got together and said, let's all work together on the ITER, the International Tokamak. Uh, took well, 30 I'll, years. Just as a side note, before you get back to fusion, um, are you then a fan of, uh, of large international efforts to go and settle space or, or do anything in space like ISS? Or do you think that cooperation hampers the speed at which- I think that uh, lack of competition takes the energy out of the program. Um, the, uh, you know, I mean, imagine having the Olympics where everyone got together at the beginning and we decided, you know, 
you know, we'll give the Americans the 100 yard dash, the Russians can have the high jump, you know, the Chinese can have the other contests. Um, this would not promote excellence. Uh, the, the, um, um, I think they're the, the best form of um, uh, international relations in space would be friendly competition, Olympic style competition. Uh, the, um, you know, I, I was actually in Leningrad when we landed on the moon. And um, all the, because I was a, a, as a kid, I was a chess player. And the, the, and all the Russians I knew, who obviously weren't in the leadership or anything, who were probably having kittens, but they, the people I knew thought it was great. We had excelled in a sport that they could appreciate, you know, um, and, and it created good feeling. We had shown that we really were capable of, of doing something that they thought was cool. And, you know, I, I'd be all for um, going to Mars uh, together with not only our allies, but the Russians, the Chinese, and so forth, uh, but on a bring-your-own-ship basis. Uh, we could be there to help each other. We can compete for who can make the most noteworthy discoveries, earn the most honors in advancing um, the human frontier. Okay, uh, Because, you know, there are particular geniuses, as it were, to different peoples, that can be contributed to this effort, you know, they, they really are. And, uh, you know, these people uh, who are, are they, they certainly have talent and, um, and it comes in a variety of forms and different takes, different angles on how to accomplish something, um, you know, uh, and, um, you know, on topic. Oh, All right, well, I, I have here. This is Time Magazine. Time Magazine. And it, you'll notice the date, April 21st, 1961. And there's Yuri Gagarin is on the cover. And Time, you know, was the conservative magazine. Newsweek was the liberal magazine. And so these people have no sympathy whatsoever for communism or the Soviet Union. Uh, and yet, um, you know, um, the Gagarin, um, flight inspired the, is, is a very long story, is the cover story. And it closes as follows. Most scientists around the world think that Major Gagarin and the good ship Vostok have opened a door that will never entirely close. Space exploration may slow down for a while or stop, but the human species is young and it is the bumptious master of a fruitful planet. More men will always yearn to travel in Major Gagarin's wake to see the blue band around the curve of the earth. Eventually, perhaps 10, 100, or 1,000 years from now, a great spaceship will carry men far out in the solar system. They will learn whether the moon and the planets have value as real estate. They may tinker with the offensive atmosphere of Venus, perhaps making it suitable for human breathing. They may develop human subtypes that will enjoy Venus as it is. They may learn to live in space itself, cruising the solar system and artificial mobile planets. Human civilization is only 7,000 years old and countless years lie ahead. But wherever future adventurers travel, wherever they may find in the black cold reaches of space, they will always remember the pair that preceded them, the Vostok and Major Yuri Alexeyevich Gagarin. And so, you know, in the Cold War, 
The space race was a light in the darkness. It really was. Um, you know, we could appreciate what they were doing. They could appreciate what we were doing. And yes, there is a military dimension to this, and that will have to be, you know, done in, in with due concern for national security. But in terms of the, the broader venture um, of the expansion of, of humanity into space and advancing that frontier, um, I think we, we, we can do it with them, once again, in a friendly, competitive way. And in the course of doing that, I think that um, we can spread the idea that is our creed, the, the, the value of freedom, uh, that it becomes apparent in this kind of activity. And um, so, yes. We... So you, you bring up several really important points here. One is the amazing value in public diplomacy, you know, uh, that the being good at sports that others appreciate matters. Uh, and, and you also display a confidence that many Americans seem to lack that, that we can compete. Um, but I've taken you afield from your answer. You were giving me your list of important things and we're talking about catalyzing, you know, a, a or, returning to the progress we left off in fusion in 1980s. Mm -hmm. Yes, and, and once again, uh, I think that actually this can be probably most uh, successfully done, not by returning to the fusion program of the 80s, which um, was government run and led, but by encouraging um, fusion SpaceX's. Uh, I think they're the ones that will carry the ball. And you know, I, I worked a little bit at fusion in Los Alamos in the mid eighties. And um, I can remember one lunch where the group leader, Bob Krakowski said to us, he just said, you know, when fusion is finally developed, it's not gonna be at a place like Los Alamos or Livermore. It's gonna be a couple of crackpots working in a garage. and Everybody laughed because, frankly, the kinds of machines that are necessary to attempt fusion are beyond the realm of garage inventors. But, um, but if not a couple of crackpots in a garage, then yes, a startup working in a warehouse. Uh, I, I think that's who's going to do it. And I think if we promote a vibrant fusion program based on um, such initiatives, we'll, we'll get fusion and we'll get it a lot faster than anyone today expects. All right, so I've come to the end of my questions, but I wanted to see, is there anything else in your message that you wanted to take this opportunity to get out? Did we not cover any of the really big critical ideas or visions or things that are gonna make this go better or faster or improve the long-term chances for freedom and liberty in the in the infinite sky before us? Well, there, there may be, but I think we've covered a lot and I, I, I can't think of more to say right now. Bob Zubrin, founder of the Mars Society and author of the new book, The Case for Space. Thank you so much for spending all this time with us. You're most welcome. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Space Strategy Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening. For questions and comments, please reach out at spacepod at afpc.org.
Thank you for listening. 